Look at him now, Zuckerman's famous pig. Zooey, what do you see? The greatest hog in history. Fine swine, wish he was mine. What if he's not so big? He's some terrific, radiant, humble thingamajig. Welcome everyone once again to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. We cover the worlds of books and films and streaming TV and so much more. Although we're not going to be talking about books this week on the podcast, not because books aren't important. They're the most important. TV wouldn't exist without books. That's what I say. But we have so much interesting film and TV coverage this week that I thought we would we'd put books aside just, just for a little while and talk about some other stuff. So why, you ask, is there a hideous barbershop quartet singing behind me? Well, that's the song Zuckerman's Famous Pig from the 1973 Charlotte's Web cartoon movie. And there's a non-cartoon movie about a pig out right now. And it's called Pig. It stars Nicolas Cage. And I thought I'd bring Book and Film Globe contributor Scott Gold onto the show to talk to me about it. Hey, Neil. Good to be here. Yeah, good to have you. So you didn't actually review this movie. I actually wrote the review for Book and Film Globe. But I wanted to talk to you about it because you are a uh, New Orleans-based food writer in addition to being a pop culture writer. So I figured you would have a pretty cool perspective, an interesting perspective on this movie. Because, you know, what I found about Pig was that, yes, it's a movie about a man's search for his his truffle sniffing hog and it's got that it's it's got that sort of revenge movie structure to it but to me it really felt like it felt like a satire of the food industry in some ways uh i couldn't agree more uh you know i think i didn't know a whole lot about pig going into it um and I kind of assumed, like a lot of people did, that it was going to be, like, you read the long line, and you just have a very vague sense of what the movie is about, and it's got Nicolas Cage in it. You're like, okay, so this is going to be Nicolas Cage as John Wick or Liam Neeson in Taken, but kind of in the food world. Uh, and, you know, it's going to allow Nick Cage to go on this revenge rampage to find his pig. And there's an alternate universe in which that movie exists, and I want to see it, but that's not what this movie is, and I was actually really surprised um, and a little bit touched, because it's really uh, a tone poem uh, about food and grief and loss, and, uh, you know, uh, turned a lot more sincere than I thought it would be, but not unappreciated, and not the least of which is its focus on food, and especially the Portland dining scene, which I found really fascinating because I've been out there, my brothers uh, lived out there, one of them still does, uh, and uh, I've eaten at some of those restaurants that they're kind of uh, satirizing in the restaurant, and it's really funny uh, to kind of see from this filmic perspective. Um, you know, there's one point where uh, Nicholas Cage uh, goes into a restaurant and one of his former uh, employees is, you know, the it chef and it's the most ridiculous uh, hood cuisine, you know, it's right out of Portlandia, you know, they have this cloche filled with smoke that they, you know, open up to reveal like, you know, two and a half bites of scallops, which he, he shoves his thumb in and squirts out a little bit of quail, I guess something just really brutally, um, 
and that was really fun. But the uh, the attention to the food was really well done, um, particularly as it is to um, to Portland and you know kind of their dining ethos and their restaurant. Uh, philosophy, um, which has been, you know, mocked and satirized by Portlandia. They have that whole episode where they find out more about the chicken and his whole provenance, which is pretty funny, and that his name is Colin. Um, and there was that, but there's this other side to it where they, the movie creates this kind of seedy, underground world of food people that doesn't exist, and I thought it was uh, a really fun and interesting and dark take on, you know, a part of the food world that, uh, that is fantastical, but you know, it's like busboys and waiters in a fight club. Like I wanted to know a little bit more about that. Um, even though, you know, part of me was straining at credulity because, you know, restaurant workers don't have health insurance. So I don't think any of them were really going to risk it on a fight club, but, um, that said, (laughs) so yes. So I think that, what I gathered from that was that the restaurant workers were betting on these fights, that it was sort of an underground fight club in a secret lair where maybe the restaurant maybe the restaurant workers and chefs were, were battling to the death. You know, it was interesting. It was such a weird scene because it really was not totally in line with the rest of the movie at all. Like the movie then swerved away, like you said, to be a sort of a meditation on grief and on loss. And it wasn't really about this. There weren't secret restaurants and secret restaurant hotels. There was just that one scene. So I felt like that was kind of bizarre. And while it was cool, it was kind of off of the rest of the movie. It it was like, you got to pick, you know, pick your poison. Either you're going to go fully that way or you're going to go, you know, fully realistic. That, you know, that said, I felt like the satire of the restaurant industry was was really potent. And, you know, those of us who have, like, rushed to the latest trendy restaurant only to find ourselves sitting on milk crates and eating pickles out of mason jars, I mean, that, those are sort of dated references to this, but whatever the current iteration of that is or the post-COVID iteration of that is, I feel like that movie, if you see this movie you got to think twice before you do something like that again. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think they, uh, they took the food angle and they did something interesting with it that I don't think has really been done. Um, I would have liked them see to kind of go further in that more fantastical direction on the fight club scene. I thought it worked as a neat plot device, uh, for, you know, watching, Nicholas Cage's, you know, com- you know, man who is in complete broken despair, just take a giant beating without ever raising a hand and no complaints. Uh, and it, I think it, it, uh, showed just how, you know, just how lost this guy was. Um, you know, I don't know how believable it was. I think, you know, restaurant writers do it, but as a plot device, I thought it was, uh, it was an interesting call. The thing that I really enjoyed food-wise about the movie was, you know, the final scene where you finally, you know, you get to see uh, after you very, it takes a long time to kind of, they spool out who this character is and what his background is and what he's all about philosophically and what he believes in. And when you finally get to see him cook, I thought that was a real payoff because the attention to detail on the food itself, what they cooked, how it was depicted, I thought was really successful. 
Agreed. Although he does cook in that opening scene where he's making that mushroom tart for himself and the pig. That is true. We don't really get to see a good shot of the tart, though. That kind of disappointed me. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. So, that, so that's the thing about this movie is you know you well first of all you mentioned that Nicolas Cage takes taking the beating. He's sort of like a like a Buddha like or like a Jesus like figure who's su- who's just carrying all the weight of of human suffering on his shoulders as well as his own suffering. Um, so uh, so there's that, but oh, yeah, but but you know, I felt like to me his main his main storyline was riveting, and and the the through line of his search for his stolen pig was was absolutely was handled beautifully. I felt like the subplot with the father and son food purveyor and the and the mom who may or may not be dead. I felt like that was a it felt a little indie filmish to me, and it wasn't even really all that necessary. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I kind of I liked um, I, I liked the you know the relationship aspect between um, Alex Wolf's Amir and Adam Arkin's Darius, uh, and the way that kind of played out because uh, you know by the end of the movie I you know at the beginning of the movie we see Amir and we're like oh yeah it's another city douchebag in a fancy yellow car who's just you know gonna be the stock you know a hole for the movie that we can all crap on. Um, but I thought they did a pretty good job of kind of teasing out a little bit who he is and who he wants to be and why. Uh, so that character had a surprising amount of depth as far as I was concerned. Um, uh, it took me a second to really buy uh, Adam Arkin's Darius. Um, uh, and by the way, you know, he had the best haircut in the whole movie. Uh, you know, after, see- <laughs> after seeing just Nick Cage, you know, look like, He's right out of hobo with a shotgun uh, and refusing any sort of medical treatment, just caked with mud and blood the entire movie. And you're right, it is this very kind of Christ-like sort of depiction. Uh, you know, seeing Darius, who is, you know, this successful food purveyor who's, you know, who I assumed was a sociopath at first, but then we, you know, we break his, his tough exterior and we get, to the, we get to the soft center a little bit. Uh, at the end of the movie with food in a moment that was reminiscent uh, of that scene in Ratatouille with Anton Ego where he takes a bite of the Ratatouille and it instantly transported him to his childhood. Uh, uh, I think it's not a stretch to draw comparisons between those two scenes. That is an interesting comparison, and I agree. I just felt like that subplot took over the movie in some ways, whereas the main plot was extremely gripping. And I just wanted to see more of it. I think if you had Pig the series, you know, the, the father, obviously you're going to have to have subplots and the father-son the, the father plot would make more sense. But I just, I just felt like sometimes we, we, I, we, I felt a little lost in, um, in the sub-narrative sometimes. But that all, all that said, Pig is a, a very a strange and interesting and kind of amazing movie. And I definitely recommend you see it. I think it's quite ironic, too, and I put this in my review, Scott, that, you know, the same people who are always rushing out to see, to eat at the next amazing restaurant are the same ones who I see recommending this amazing pig movie. It's like an artisanal movie about artisanal food for artisanal people. That makes a lot of sense to me. I really enjoyed it. Uh, it stuck with me in a way that not a lot of movies do. Uh, I didn't think it was 100% successful in everything it did, but um, 
I think it was, you know, a really great moment in Nicolas Cage's career and proves once again that we can't write him off because he chooses to be in so much garbage. Um, you know, it's nice to see him play a role with, you know, that really stretches uh, his acting ability and really shows us his chops again. Yeah, he's out of the grindhouse for sure. So, Scott, thank you so much for um, discussing Pig with me. I look forward to someday visiting New Orleans so you could just uh, put a funnel in my mouth and load a bunch of food down my gullet. It's going to happen. If you don't leave New Orleans 25 pounds heavier after being here with me, I will consider myself a failure. All right, but you have to find an underground fight club for me. Oh, well, that's easy. Yeah. All right, cool. Scott Gold, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right, ciao. Stephen Garrett is here for his weekly segment uh, about the movie. Stephen has subjected himself this week to the new M. Night Shyamalan movie, Old. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Tell us a little bit about Old. You know, I think I, I, here's the twist in my own life with my relationship with M. Night Shyamalan. I always go in expecting a really good movie, and then the twist is, it's not. So that's, I guess, on me, but he keeps stooping me every time because his premises are always just grabby enough to make you think, okay, maybe this time it'll work out and actually be pretty, uh, pretty good. And um, I like the premise of old. old uh, the premise of old is that, I mean, from the trailers and the marketing, you see that these people go to a beach and then they suddenly start getting old. They start aging very rapidly. And I thought, okay, well, that's kind of a fun premise. Let's see where this goes. And uh, he doesn't do much with it, and um, it's kind of disappointing. It feels like a missed opportunity. You know, I think it's funny with M. Night Shyamalan. He, he moves in cycles, right? Like, when The Sixth Sense came out, he was a genius. And when Unbreakable was soon after that, he was a genius. And then suddenly, he was the worst filmmaker ever. That's not wrong. I don't think you're being too unfair. I, I think what he is is, I, I think he's a very talented director, and I think he is very good at suspense, and he really knows how to hold the camera um, maybe a little bit longer than we're used to so that things start to feel a little unsettled, and you really feel like you're in the hands of somebody who's very confident about the story they're telling. It's just the stories he tells are so silly. I mean, fundamentally and ultimately, you know, but once you get to the end, they're really very silly. Uh, and it's very frustrating. And, and I, I, I felt this as well when I reviewed uh, Glass a couple of years ago. That was his last movie. Um, unless I missed one. I know he's put out a lot. Maybe I missed one. There was something about grandparents in a house and there was a little boy. Or, do you remember that one? You're imagining. That's, that's, that's the twist, is that you sometimes imagine M. Night Shyamalan movies. He's gotten very unusually uh, prolific uh, for him. I think he was quiet there for a couple of years, and now he's made like five movies in three years or four years. It was, I think, uh, something for one of the streamers. Anyway, um, yeah, he just really should hire a professional screenwriter and maybe uh, hire some, maybe get a writer's room, I don't know, for some of his stuff, because he, it really, he needs to road test these ideas a little bit uh, better. This one actually was kind of road test. It was based, uh, Old was based on uh, a graphic novel uh, called Sandcastle by uh, these European guys, Pierre Oscar Levy and Frederick Peters. 
um, with two E's. And uh, it's very interesting. I kind of, you know, not knowing anything about it, uh, I did a quick uh, search um, just to find out about the book, see if I can see some of these graphic novel pages, find out a little bit more. And they had an interview with one of the guys, and, and um, they said, uh, he said, well, first of all, the article is about what, you know, was there a twist in the original graphic novel? There was not at the end. Um, and the European, uh, one of the European writers of it said, uh, no, I thought of this was not a thriller. It was a fable. And I think for me, that's what I was hoping it would be. The premise is really, let's explore that idea. What would that mean emotionally, psychologically, if you started aging? And for M. Night, it's, it's just a means to an end for a very silly end. Um, that is kind of frustrating. And I, I guess, well, all of his movies have a bit of a, a, a message in a sense. You know, like I think Signs was his eco-conscience movie. The Village kind of spoke to the idea of uh, tribalism in our societies and how you need to, you know, not be so afraid of the other. You know, and this one I think is his twist on Big Pharma if I'm not giving too much away, and I don't think you are, because if you're paying attention in the first 10 minutes, he keeps dropping hints that clearly there's something that's tied in with uh, pharmaceuticals. Um, but uh, that's all I'll say. I don't want to spoil it. But I think, frankly, he takes these fables that can be very powerful and turns them into gimmicky thrillers. He's kind of a um, C-grade Gen X Rod Sterling is what it comes down to. He's a Gen X Rod Sterling, exactly right. Yeah, I mean... I, uh, and I made this comparison before. He's like, he's Jordan Peele without the profundities. Not that Jordan Peele is that profound, but I think he, he does, I think Peele works on more of a mythic, more of a fabulistic uh, level. He doesn't fall for the trappings of let's wrap it up with a really cutesy, silly ending. And I think Shyamalan really scored with Sixth Sense because I, it, it was a classic, like, ghost story that had a twist that I felt was kind of earned and really clever. Um, and it's been a while since he's had one of those for his ending. Everyone, I, I just eye roll every time I see the end of his movie. I'm just like, oh, boy. And then he had, uh, he had a little, his sort of second wind was his, his post-modern take on superheroes. And that was 20 years in the making, which to me was the weirdest thing. You know, he puts this movie out Unbreakable, and then, you know, close to 20 years later, he drops two sequels in rapid succession, you know. And I, I have to hand it to him. Uh, I, I actually kind of admired his tenacity and his willingness to, to finish a story he had started. Clearly, it was on his mind and uh, gestating, uh, maybe not developing, but gestating. <laughs> uh, and, and I... I, I was impressed that he followed through on that. I don't think it was that successful. I think he still had story issues, and I think his dialogue is horrible. Um, I mean, in this movie, Old, uh, the weirdest character I've ever seen, uh, one of the kids, Gael Garcia Bernal and Vicky Creeps are the uh, parents, and then they have these two kids, and there's a six-year-old boy who literally goes around to strangers saying, what's your name and what's your occupation? Like, is that supposed to be a cute precocious kid or is that just a handy device for explaining you know exposition because it turns out to be a handy exposition device because even after that all the characters are going around introducing themselves and saying what they did and it's the, i've never seen this in a movie and it was the stupidest thing i've ever seen it's like the worst cocktail party ever well i hope that he doesn't make a sequel old to the oldening too old too older 
I'm not looking forward to it. I'm not. I'm probably not going to see you old either. I have to say, uh, I'm already uh, getting I, old. I feel myself getting old every day. I, I don't need to, to watch a movie about getting old. I, I, I know what it's like. I have the spot on my hands to prove it. So I'm, I think I'm going to pass. Uh, but Stephen's review of old, I believe, will be appearing on Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe, any minute now. So, uh, so you also check it out, Stephen. We will talk to you soon. Hopefully, you'll get a, you'll get something a little bit better to, to watch next time. No, it's my pleasure. I'm happy to watch good, bad, otherwise, as long as it's worth talking about. Right. And this one's definitely. It, it it's always worth talking about. As, as I've said before. Stephen and I are a, uh, we're like uh, Jeffrey Lyons and Michael Medved, run through the multiplicity machine a couple of times, but here we are, still chatting about the movies, like it's 1986 or something, so Stephen, have a great one, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, you too. Jake Harris is here to talk about a couple of pieces that he wrote for us this week. The first one... Speaking of food, which we've spoken about a little bit earlier, we talked about the movie Pig. There is a new documentary, controversial new documentary, uh, out about Anthony Bourdain. And Jake reviewed it and wrote about the controversy for us this week. So, Jake, tell us a little bit about Roadrunner and what the controversy involves. Uh, so, Roadrunner is uh, the, mo- the new documentary from uh, Morgan Neville. He made uh, the Mr. Rogers documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Um, and he also made the uh, 20 Feet from Stardom documentary. Um, and this documentary is uh, mostly compiled of uh, like old parts unknown footage, old home video footage, Instagram stories, uh, old just camcorder videos um, of Anthony Bourdain, and it chronicles his life, uh, how he went from, um, you know, like the bad boy chef to memoirist and author to just international celebrity through his uh, touring shows um, and through Parts Unknown. Um, And it also covers... a, a little bit of speculation um, about how he died uh, in 2018, um, and we can get into that in a little bit more uh, later. But the reason that people are mad about it is because the director said that he um, he used some AI technology in order to get Anthony Bourdain saying something that he wrote, but he never actually said. So. Uh, he gave an interview, the director gave an interview to Vulture, uh, or I think it was the New Yorker, uh, saying that he took like hours and hours and hours of Bourdain's voice, fed it through a computer program, and instructed it to you know, say these specific words that he had, because he said that he had uh, some stuff that Bourdain wrote, but there is no audio of him saying it. Uh, because it's an email that he wrote, and how often do you record yourself writing an email that you've sent, you know? So, obviously, there was no audio um, of Anthony Bourdain uh, saying this email, and then he put it in the movie. And so, a lot of people were um, taken aback by that and, you know, started down the uh, the slippery slope of, well, if you can do this, then what about, you know, deep fakes, and what about... Um, the kind of murky ethical waters that you wade in whenever you make a documentary like this. It's so funny that you should say that because it's like are people now, just now waking up to the reality that documentaries are artificially constructed. 
This yeah, is like the, first... the, the, and I mentioned this in the piece, like this, even in, you know, the 20s with, uh, you know, like Nanook of the North, the, which is a silent film documentary, there was a staged interaction between some of the people in that, and then, you know, Errol Morris's Thin Blue Line uh, took a lot of flack at the time for, like, slow-mo and reenactments, which is, like, par for the course for every true crime thing that you can see today, pretty much. Um, and then if you want to get right down to it, like, sticking a camera in front of someone's face is always going to get a different reaction from that person rather than if you were just voyeuristically filming them, you know? Um, so, but the the thing that I thought was funny about the email uh, audio was that it starts off as, it, it was actually a really like poignant moment where... Um, it came kind of towards the end where all of all of Anthony Bourdain's friends were kind of talking about, you know, how gutted they were when he died. And um, the, the email was to an artist friend of his, David Cho, and um, the, the audio, I think the exact verbatim line was something like Anthony Bourdain is emailing him and he's saying, you know, I'm successful and you're successful are you happy? How do you find happiness with all of this success? And so the way that that's translated on screen is David Cho is reading the text of the email and it starts off with his voice and then halfway through him reading it, it kind of, he talks with the AI modified Anthony Bourdain voice, but then by the end of it, it's completely the, the AI voice of Anthony Bourdain. And to the technology's credit, it does sound like him. Like if you hadn't sat and thought like, okay, why would there be audio of him reading an email? Uh, you, you totally would have just been like, oh, like that, that's his voice. To me, this sounds lame and corny, but not exactly a crime against cinema. Right. Like it, it, sounds almost like, I don't know why he would have just chosen to let uh, Cho read the whole email himself, really. Um, I feel like that might have been a little bit more of an emotional moment to go with, but um, I did not make that movie. This is a very sentimental film about Anthony Bourdain in a lot of ways, but the yes. real controversy that you point out and the and the one I think that bothered you more than than the the uh, voice manipulation was the movie's obsession with Bourdain's suicide and how it tried to come to some sort of conclusion as to why this incredibly famous, good-looking, charismatic, and universally beloved man decided to kill himself at the prime of his career. Yeah, and like I mean. This movie, this movie exists because of his death, right? Like, you wouldn't have made a documentary spanning his life and death had he not died. Um, and there, as the footage points out throughout the whole movie, like, he was not... Um, he was not hesitant to excuse me. He was not hesitant to joke about his own death or just the concept of death in general on his shows and, and like personal interviews. Um, so it's kind of hard to make a documentary about Anthony Bourdain without talking about death or talking about suicide. But for the whole first part of the movie, where it's talking about his life and his rise to fame and everything, it almost staunchly avoids talking about death and talking about. Uh, 
how he died or anything like that, just because the man was so larger than life and it's so focused on you know his his zest for traveling and for experiencing things and opening his own horizons and other people's horizons. Um, but then once it gets to kind of the uh, it's a two hour movie, and then I would say probably around the like hour and a half mark, it starts getting into his relationship with his girlfriend at the time of his death, who was the, the Italian actress Aja Argento, and it. Uh, Every talking head on there pretty much is outright implies like it was hit that relationship was what basically caused him to kill himself and um, you know like I, it's still very like he only he died in 2018 right so it was like three years ago and I'm sure it's still very you know hard to to deal with and there's a lot of processing going on for everyone but I felt like the tone of the movie took a shift from let's celebrate this man's life and the legacy he left behind to okay but why did he do it why did he kill himself he didn't leave a suicide note so there's clearly got to be something that you know set him off here and happened when at the same time the documentary also goes to great lengths to show like the guy was really complicated the guy had a lot of thoughts about a lot of things he could you know do stuff on a dime that people weren't really expecting but also he you know contained multitudes so i just felt like trying to to pin one one single thing on any one person or any one event as the cause was doing kind of a disservice to his legacy and his life and i'm not even like i'm uh, I haven't read any of his books. I haven't uh, seen a lot of Parts Unknown uh, before this movie. Um, but I just felt like that wasn't really like the, the way to go, I guess, if you were trying to honor him. And then they didn't even yeah. talk to, to Aja Argento. And then the director said that he outright like made the decision to deliberately not talk to her because of the can of worms that it would open. Um, which again is is just like, do you want your documentary to be accurate to life, or do you want it to be like a document of and an opinion of who a person was? The, the can of worms opening of making the movie like probably ten times more interesting than it actually is. Yeah. What a can of worms that is! I mean, come on, who wouldn't want to see that interview? Because I think she gave you know, a couple I, interviews, and he references that, and he just didn't want to go down that that road, but. It never even, like, there's not even a comment that was like, oh, we did not contact her. She was reached for comment and didn't want to talk, like, anything like that. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I actually am someone who's read Bourdain's books and who watched a lot of hours of Anthony Bourdain traveling around the world, being cool, eating cool things, doing cool things, and wishing in some ways that he were uh, Anthony Bourdain, or at least some, to some extent Anthony oh. Bourdain. Um, even and, after that movie, I was like, I can, I can see why people would, would have that, uh, that response to him. Like, in, just even in like, you know, home video footage, incredibly charismatic person. Yeah, most interesting man in the world. And you know, I, yeah. I when it happened, the first thing I thought was, oh, it's, I got to have something to do with Aja Argento. But I didn't. I don't know. I, I you know, I, I would like to see. Um, I would have liked to have seen an interview with her. Let's, let's just say that. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway. All right, um, that's Roadrunner. That is a film about Anthony Bourdain. Uh, Jake, our, your your piece is on Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com, and I I thought it was a great piece, and you should all check it out. On a more cheery note, <laughs> let us let us pivot away from the suicides of famous people and instead talk about 
the grisly murder of characters in a series of, I would say, teen horror films for Netflix. Fear Street uh, has concluded its initial three film run, and Jake, you watched them all, and you had you had a lot of good things to say about it in your piece this week. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with it. Um, it yeah, it is. It's teen horror. It was. Uh, it's an adaptation of a R.L. Stein book series that he wrote as a way to kind of corner the market on kids that were, you know, a little bit older than Goosebumps, but maybe not quite ready for you know adult horror novels just yet. Um, and the director of the trilogy said that they they didn't really adapt it from any one of those books, any one of those series in the books, but they tried to match the tone of it pretty well. Um, and I haven't read any of the books, but if it's if they're anything like this movie series, the tone is pretty uh, pretty tongue in cheek, pretty playful, but also um, very gory, very violent killings in some places. Like there's some images from the the third movie that. I've still stuck with me. Um, but then again, you get a character joking about like HTML and AOL in the 90s. So it's it's all kind of wrapped up in one little nostalgic package there. Um, and it uh, it, it seems like it seems to me that it, it, I say it seems to me that it it, it, um, it captures a little bit of nostalgia for the Scream movies, which themselves were nostalgic for 80s slasher films. Yeah, and that was a very interesting. Uh, the, the cold open for the 1994 Fear Street movie. Uh, there's three movies. First one's 1994. Second one's 1978, and then the third one is 1666. Um, but the cold open for the first one features. Uh, Maya Hawke, who is uh, Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman's daughter, also from Stranger Things on Netflix. Uh, and the cold open features her getting killed within the first five minutes at a shopping mall in 1994. Uh, and she was also one of the primary actresses used to market this film. So it clearly knows its references, and it's clearly trying to go for the Drew Barrymore and Scream moment uh, for that part of it, which I had a lot of and, fun. And also trying to tap into ta- also trying to tap into the massive Stranger Things audience. Yes, and then there's also um, there's another Stranger Things actress, and I forget her name, but she's the the. The redheaded kid that joins them in season three, I think. Uh, she is also she plays a big part in uh, seventy-eight and sixteen sixty-six. Um, and so there's they're combining Stranger Things and Scream and Friday the Thirteenth and uh, old slasher movies, and then even sixteen sixty-six kind of gets into like the witch territory. The uh, witch and Wanda Wanda also had some Salem witch trial stuff going on. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is true. Yeah. Um, and it, uh, it's interesting. It was a lot of fun just to, to watch that, uh, and to kind of get in a mode that's not like Stranger Things kids horror, but also it's not like super, super scary. Um, but also the, the more interesting thing that I liked was it's, it, it's a TV series, but it's movies really because they they dropped each movie one week after another uh, this past month. So um, each Friday night, I think they got a new one, and uh, that was kind of the plan when the the movies were first in development over at 20th Century Fox. They were going to try and release them theatrically three months uh, in a three month span, uh, which I don't think has been done for a series in a really long time, uh, just because the, you know, the glut of everything at the box office would probably make that pretty difficult, but 
it looks like they were willing to try for that, and then Disney bought Fox, and Disney's you know not too big on horror movies, so uh, it kind of went up in the air, and Netflix grabbed it, and then they're like, yeah, sure, uh, let's play around with the distribution model. And I think it's funny that because Netflix is. You know, they could pretty much do whatever they want. They can make episodes as long or as short as however they need them to be. And yet most movies are two hours, hour and a half long. And most TV shows are, you know, you can binge them right away and they're 40 minutes an episode. And this is one of the first things that I've seen on Netflix in a really long time where they were using their platform to their own advantage to market out this movie. And the movies are, the movies are an hour and a half-ish? Uh, they're about... Uh, about two, two, an hour and a half to two hours. So the lengths are pretty traditional movie lengths, um, but the the way that they released it is kind of like a movie TV hybrid. And then the the way that they advertise it, the the moment that 1994 ends, you could watch that one and kind of get the whole gist of the story and be satisfied. Um, and then at the end, the title card comes up where it's like, you know, to be continued, 1978, part two. And then so if you wanted to get the whole story, you would need to watch the other two to get the full effect. Um, but the first one is kind of is pretty much a good standalone piece. Um, yeah, well, this so, 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 yeah, and you point this out well in your piece. You know, this is, not, you know, it, it is its own, it, it is a... Uh, a horror comedy teen movie mashup, but it's also uh, there's a potentially a new distribution model and it, and it's sort of a new way to ch- consume content and just like Netflix pushed the ball forward several steps when it came to uh, binge watching shows. This is sort of introducing the concept of binge watching movie series. So I think that's very interesting and it's it's uh, very savvy the way you pointed it out this week and. Uh, that's why that's why we pay you the big bucks, Jake. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. Well, there you have it, Jake Harris talking about the new Anthony Bourdain documentary and also about Fear Street, three horror movies which are available to stream consecutively on Netflix. And so we're going to close out this week's edition of the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast with "Don't Fear the Reaper" from Blue Oyster Cult. An old man song that also plays over the opening credits of the original and better miniseries version of The Stand from 1994, which is when the first Fear Street movie is set. So I'm Neil Pollock. I'm the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and everything else content-related I hope you can join us again for another edition of the show and keep reading the site. You will learn everything you need to know to be alive in the world. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. I always value books and films and good TV, but now during a pandemic, I appreciate them. I need them more than ever. That's why I read Book and Film Globe. Bookandfilmglobe.com is the smartest, sharpest commentary about what's good and what's um, not good in the worlds of books, movies, and quality TV. This isn't celebrity gossip. 
And it's not for woke 22-year-olds. It's just smart, clear writing about the best new things to watch and read. Interviews with directors, concise reviews of hot new books, actors describing classic scenes. It's all on bookandfilmglobe.com. And there are three Rotten Tomatoes certified reviewers, so you know you're getting good advice. Check out Book and Film Globe. That's bookandfilmglobe.com. Audio Hopper.